Today's episode of Help Me Teach the Bible was recorded in 2015. You can find episodes on every book of the Bible, along with topical conversations on Bible teaching at tgc.org slash podcasts. It says that the Ninevites heard Jonah and they believed God. Uh, That's terrific. So here's this man. He speaks the word of God. They hear him and they believe God. So when we speak the word of God, then the voice of God is heard. And um, that's a wonderful encouragement for anyone who's a Bible teacher. You speak the word of God, um, then uh, when the word of God is heard, the voice of God uh, is heard. I'm Nancy Guthrie. Welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible an audio series for people who are looking for much more than just a little bit of inspiration for the day when we go to the Bible. We are people who find ourselves leading discussions about the Bible, teaching Sunday school, Bible studies, leading in youth programs, and therefore we want to be equipped to rightly, effectively, and creatively teach through books of the Bible. And I'm thrilled today to be sitting in the office of Colin Smith, one of the people who has taught me so much about teaching the Bible, Um, not because I've been in his office before, but because in this wonderful day of technology, I've been able to listen to many, many, many Colin Smith sermons. So thank you for the teaching you do just by teaching and preaching the word, Colin. Well, Nancy, it's a joy to have you here and thank you and I appreciate your ministry so very much indeed. So I think everybody already realized once they've heard you talk a little bit. (laughs) That you're not from around these parts. Um, We're sitting in your office in Arlington Heights, Illinois, but uh, clearly you're not from here. You were raised in Edinburgh, Scotland. Do I say that the way you do? Edinburgh, Scotland, you get it absolutely right. You've, of course, got that role. You've got the little role you (laughs) add to it, which i got to tell you, when I'm listening to your sermon, so often I'll just say out loud, oh, that role. I mean, there are certain (laughs) words where that role of yours just comes through, and it uh, really tickles me. Um, So you've been here at The Orchard, which is an evangelical free church, since 1996. That's right. And you have a radio, and um, I suppose these days it's not maybe primarily radio, but perhaps online ministry in terms of unlocking the Bible. Tell us a little bit about that ministry. Yeah, uh, unlocking the Bible does what um, you're attempting to do in this series, to open up the Bible, apply it into the lives um, of people. And we do that through radio, we do that through social media, through print, and in every way that we possibly can. And one of the things I love about unlocking the Bible is your real focus on presenting the Bible as one big story that is all about Christ. Yeah. And we we talk a lot about the power of the open book because um, uh, the the, the power isn't in in the uh, speaker. The power is in the book itself. It's in the Word of God. I think that's why uh, folks who wouldn't see themselves as great speakers can be encouraged. Look, open the Bible, teach the Bible, and the Bible will do its own work. It's living seed, and the power is there. It is the Word of God. So uh, there's great encouragement in that. There is. I think of that uh, passage in Isaiah, is it Isaiah 55, where it says that the word of God will accomplish mm-hmm. what he intends. Yeah. And that is a good encouragement. Sometimes we as teachers, we look out, we see some heavy eyelids, <laughs> and perhaps after we finish teaching or preaching, nobody really says anything to us. 
about, you know, that was great or that really meant something to me. And we can sometimes think uh, my teaching must have been a failure. And yet we know if we're presenting God's word, we can rest. It will accomplish what he intends. Yeah, that's right. And and Jesus takes that theme up, the parable of the sower. You put out the seed, you never quite know what's going to come of it. Uh, you have written a number of books. And today we're going to talk together about the book of Jonah. And you have written a book, uh, Jonah, a subtitle, Navigating a God-Centered Life. And I see you also did the introduction and notes on the book of Jonah in the Gospel Transformation Bible, which was published by Crossway. Now, our aim in this conversation is to equip teachers to rightly teach the book of Jonah. And most of us have heard Jonah taught in what's really very simplistic, moralistic uh, messages based on the book, or perhaps for some of us, our only real connection with the book of Jonah is a a children's storybook mm-hmm. that's all about a big fish. Yeah. <laughs> so per, maybe it will help us to begin by identifying some of the, before we talk about how to teach it rightly, let's talk about how the book of Jonah is often taught wrongly or perhaps just insufficiently. Yeah. Well, I think you're right. For a lot of people, uh, the book is about uh, a big fish. And it's not about a big fish. It's about a big God. It's about a great God who relentlessly goes after his people, never lets them go, is a God who acts in injustice and, and in mercy. I think another way in which it's often sort of uh, taught at a shallow level is, you know, Jonah was a man who went wrong and he ran into a storm. If you go wrong, you'll run into a storm. Uh, but, you know, if you live the right way, then, you know, the, the sun will be... Um, uh, shining on you, which of course doesn't work so well when you have the disciples of Jesus in a boat and they end up in a storm, not because they're disobedient, but because they're obedient. And uh, uh, so uh, these kinds of approaches um, leave us short. We want to get to the heart of uh, what the book's about. The Bible's first about God and then about us. And so uh, uh, coming to any book of the Bible to say, what am I learning about God here is always a safe way of approaching uh, for anyone who's uh, teaching the Bible. But we do also learn a great deal about ourselves. I mean, the sheer complexity of what is going on in Jonah's heart as someone who has given himself to ministry as a prophet. I mean, he's known as the prophet from Gath Heifer, and um, he's esteemed by by the people of God. Uh, And yet he's got all these conflicts that are going on underneath the surface in his life. And so we learn a great deal about God. We learn a great deal about ourselves. And uh, these are the two great themes that we want to try and explore, I think, in our conversation. You've said that he's an esteemed prophet in mm. Gath Heifer. He's had some, might we say, uh, prophetic uh, successes. Mm-hmm. And perhaps that helps us understand the way his story begins and why there is such a crisis in terms of him. God comes to him and tells him uh, he's not going to merely prophesy there where he has been very comfortable and mm-hmm. esteemed. Instead, God wants to send him outside the boundaries of the northern kingdom where he has been prophesying to um, the people of Israel. 
help us understand why that would have been a real crisis for him based on the what was going on in that time sure. and in that day. Well, it was a really tough calling. I mean, we do know when uh, Jonah uh, uh, lived in history because we're specifically told in Second Kings chapter 14 and verse 25 that he prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam uh, II. So roughly dated, that's about 790 uh, uh, through to uh, 730 years before Christ. Well, now, 722 years before, 722 B.C., Um, That was the time of the fall of the northern kingdom. The ten tribes that are invaded. Who are they invaded by? The Assyrians. What's the capital city or the stronghold of Assyria? Nineveh is. So these people uh, were just 30, 40 years before the time when they uh, overran um, uh, God's people and and the decimation of the the ten tribes. These are the enemies of the people of God. And they were known for wickedness and violence. I mean, make your hair stand on end. Some of the tortures that they had devised. It was notorious. So it's not surprising that at the beginning of the book, God says their evil has come up uh, before me. So um, here's this guy who has a ministry that's much appreciated. He has uh, prophesied the expansion of Israel's borders. We're told that in the King's reference. Uh, And now he's told to leave the people of God who esteem him and he's been prophesying blessing on them. And he's got to go and speak against those who are so violent and uh, people who perhaps many of God's people might have been praying, Lord, you know, do them in, Uh, let them be done, let them be gone. It would be a huge relief if you judged them. And uh, God uh, says to him, now I want you to go. And at the end of the book, he says, well, now this is why I didn't want to go, God, because I knew how merciful you would be and that this might be the outcome that these folks who in the end, um, uh, their their, their children would act against uh, the people of God, you you ended up showing mercy to them and uh, he had a problem with that. And here he is, he's an esteemed prophet. Everybody likes what yeah. he's been saying. And would it be accurate to say that he could see in the future, okay, if I go there to these enemies, and then we have to welcome them in, in a sense, as brothers and yeah. sisters yeah. because they follow God, and I come home and I tell my people, great news, the <laughs> Ninevites have embraced the one true God, they're not going to be happy with me because those are our enemies. That's exactly right, yeah. And I think, you know, you're just putting oneself in Jonah's shoes. I mean, um, if one were to pick a place in the world that you thought was the most dangerous, violent place where torture and all kinds of violence goes on and God were to call you to go there and to, to leave a ministry that's much more comfortable and that's appreciated, what, what would I feel? Well, I can see myself in Jonah. I can see um, uh, the challenge uh, that's there. And I think any thoughtful person is going to say, you know, this isn't so far from reality. Um, it's one thing to be esteemed with um, uh, with a ministry and appreciated. It's another thing to be asked by God, called by God, uh, to do what Jonah was called to do. As I've tried to think about teaching this and trying to make a connection that would help people in our modern day understand the tension of why Jonah wouldn't want to go, I wonder if it would be an appropriate comparison, to compare it to if we lived in the late uh, 1930s or early 1940s and perhaps we had friends uh, or family who had uh, been in World War II Mm -hmm. and uh, were mistreated by Germans and we were called to then go to Germany Mm -hmm. and preach that they might repent and that we could call them brothers and sisters in Christ. For many people, that would be like, we don't, we don't 
we don't want that. We don't want them to become a part of us by embracing God. I, I wonder if that would create some of the same tensions. Yeah, I think that's right. And of course, there were uh, many examples of missionaries who went uh, after the war to uh, to countries um, where there had formerly been conflict. In a sense, I think this is even harder, though, because it's the fear of what these folks in the future might do um, and what a generation later, the children of those who uh, repented or um, uh, had turned out to do. Um, so, so Jonah's fear um, uh, was under understandable. Uh, but he was confronted with the reality that God is uh, uh, a God of mercy and that uh, he is going after these people in mercy and in grace. Yes. So ultimately, when we're teaching through this book, we almost have to go to the end of the book of Jonah, don't we, to understand what's happening at the beginning as to why he doesn't want to go. We find out it's not until chapter four. I knew you'd do this, God. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I knew it. Yeah. You would have a mercy on them. And that is what helps us understand why he runs, isn't it? Yeah. And the fascinating thing in chapter four is that the great description of praise, that uh, God, you're gracious, you're merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's the great description of praise. And, and Jonah turns it into a complaint. He says, <laughs> this is why I didn't want to go, because I know that's the kind of thing you'd do. And you'd do it to our enemies, too. And, uh, and, and he says, this is why I fled. This is why. I did not want to go to Nineveh, and I fled to Tarshish. Speaking of Tarshish, um, when we're teaching this, we almost need a map, don't we? I mean, uh, people get kind of nervous when you throw a map up on uh, the screen. They think, okay, I I wasn't in for a geography or history lesson. But there is something about a map when we read here in, what is it, the second or third verse. He rose, he's told to go to Nineveh, and he rose to flee to Tarshish. What does a map show us? Uh, Well, it's nice and simple because it's completely the opposite direction. So uh, it could not have been more opposite from where God uh, told him to go. He went exactly in the opposite way. In your message on this book, something you said that I liked at this point, you said, when you're running away from God in rebellion, you can always find a ship that will take you there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, he went down to Joppa and there was a ship. Behold, surprise. Surprise. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Spurgeon has a, a wonderful story um, uh, at this point. I think Sinclair Ferguson quotes it in his excellent book on Jonah. Uh, Spurgeon says, there was a man who would characteristically become angry. And when he became came angry, he would throw things. And Spurgeon said, um, what surprised me was not that the man became angry, nor that he threw things when he was angry, but that every time he became angry, there was something just at hand ready for him to throw. <laughs> and uh, the ship was at hand, ready. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the enemy of our souls always has a way. Uh, the principle here is if you will not be guided by the word of God, circumstances can only mislead you. If you're trying to read circumstances, having passed up the word of God, you'll never get it right. The circumstances where there's a boat, hey, must be right for me to go. And he's not just trying to get away away from going to Nineveh, we read there at the end of verse 3, away from the presence of the Lord, but then begins at verse 4, but the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Pretty impossible to escape the presence of the Lord. Yeah, that's right. And I think that um, uh, Jonah would have known that. I mean, he was a prophet. I think what he was doing in going to Tarshish was basically resigning his ministry. Um, He couldn't continue his ministry where he was because he was a prophet and he wouldn't have any more prophetic words to speak, uh, living in rebellion against God. How can you speak the word of God authentically, um, uh, receive the word of God if you're living in rebellion against him? So he said, basically, I'm just going to disappear here. But of course, he can't, as you rightly say, get out of the reach of God. He's, he's God's man, so God's not going to let him go. 
I picture these next few verses, or if we were going to put this on a chart on a board, there's there's a very visual series of going down, down, yeah. down, right? Yeah. Uh, we read in verse 3, he went down to Joppa. In verse 4, he, you know, he gets on this ship. There's a great wind. Uh, when he gets in the ship, he goes down into the ship. And of course, we know in chapter 2, he's going to get thrown off of the ship and mm-hmm. he's going to go down, down into the sea. This is almost a very visual thing that we can demonstrate to people we're teaching um, when we teach through this book, isn't it? This very yeah. series of down, down, down. Yeah, it, it's it's down all the way until God reaches him right at the bottom. And in chapter two, he's right at the bottom of the water. I, I don't I thought um, uh, uh, from memories of the story as a child that, uh, you know, the, the fish uh, came and grabbed him on the surface of the water. But uh, no, he goes right down to the bottom and at the lowest point, uh, mm-hmm. God lays hold of him mm-hmm. and will not let him go. Anytime we're running away from yeah. God, it's down yeah. is the only way, don't you think? It, it, it surely is. Yeah. All right, let's talk about this scene on this ship because there is really so much here that is amazing. I, I, and I can't remember ever in studying the book of Jonah most of my life giving much thought to what happens here on this boat. But in your teaching of this book, so much became uh, so much clearer to me. Uh, you've got these pagan sailors on the ship. They've they've got a man uh, there who is hiding out. Mm-hmm. In the center of the ship, he is he has gone to sleep, and this um, this great storm comes up, and they are helpless in the face of the storm, and they wake Jonah up and say, "Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish." So tell us about these people on the ship and what happens here. Yes, very striking, verse uh, 5, that they're all calling out to their own God. Now, I think in a lot of people's minds, uh, uh, that's an ideal picture of pluralism. You know, everyone's got their own God, and we must all call out to our own God and sincerely follow our own path. Well, here's all these people. They're calling out to various gods that they'd worshipped, idols, and so forth and so on. And the problem is that the storm's still raging. Um, that there's no uh, reality corresponding to these gods. And the one person on the boat who knows the living and true God, who's the creator of heaven and earth, and who's the one who sent the storm in the first place, he's sent to sleep at the bottom of the boat uh, until eventually they, they, they waken him up. And how embarrassing for Jonah that uh, at a point where his testimony could have been so powerful, he actually has nothing to say because he's locked into his own conflict with God. And it's stifled ministry that would have come from him. But of course, God won't leave him there. And he's exposed because they cast lots. And, you know, the Lord is in the lot and the lot falls on Jonah. And uh, now the truth has to come out. And so what he says at that point is he offers himself up. He knows he's yeah. the problem. Yeah. Right? He knows who is the maker of the sea and of the whole earth and what why this uh, storm has come about, which a storm... Pretty much always in the Bible is is a picture of God's judgment. Certainly it is here. There, this is, a, sure. in a sense, a storm sure. 
of God's judgment, and he knows he is caught into it. And verse 9, he says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then they're even more afraid, But then, and he tells them he's fleeing the presence of the Lord. I mean, he is like the world's worst evangelist. <laughs> yeah, he really is. He really is. He really is. And yet, what we see happens, first of all, he... He offers himself up. He says, throw me in, because then basically my God will be appeased. Uh, And they don't want to do it. Yeah, what's fascinating to me about that is how did he know that the storm would cease um, if they threw him in the water? And there can only be one answer to that. Only God could have told him. So he's back to being a prophet again. He's now receiving um, as a prophet revelation from God. Uh, The sin's been confessed and he's back in a position where he's able to be useful. But the beautiful picture here is that uh, these uh, uh, the ship's crew, their lives are saved by the sacrifice of someone else. Now, that beautifully points us to our Lord Jesus Christ um, and uh, uh, and how he is sacrificed as the means of, uh, uh, of our salvation. The interesting thing is they don't want to go with the sacrifice at first. They roll the harder, you know. We don't want to be responsible for throwing you overboard. We can get through God's judgment. Uh, you know, uh, I'm going to be the captain of my own soul, that kind of thing. I mean, what you know? a picture of us yeah. today and yeah. of so many people around us yep. who say there doesn't need to be a sacrifice. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, There's no need for an atoning sacrifice for one person who offers up his life so that others might be saved. I'll just try harder. I will row harder to please this God somehow. Yep, yeah. Isn't that a picture? Row harder to please this God. And they do it till they're exhausted. And then uh, at some point, um, they realize they've got no alternative. They have to go with what God has said. So they submit themselves to the word of God, which has come through Jonah. They throw him overboard. And there's a remarkable transformation that happens in these people because um, uh, it says very clearly that they they, uh, came to to know the Lord. They sacrificed to the Lord. They feared the Lord. And it's with the four capital letters. Whenever Lord is in four capitals, uh, it's uh, always good to remember that uh, that is the covenant name of God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible. They came to know the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yes, verse 14, we hear their exact words. It says, therefore, they called out to the Lord, as you were speaking, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Now, and then we we read that in verse 16, the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Earlier I said that Jonah must be the world's worst evangelist. (laughs) And yet... Here are these pagans, and he has done a a very poor job representing uh, who Yahweh is, and yet they have taken hold of him. Yeah, that's right, which is a really important point that we're saved by the gospel, not by the person who spoke it to us. Um, I mean, if if our salvation depended on the person who spoke it to us, we'd spend the rest of our lives hoping that the person who spoke it to us didn't mess up. Um, But uh, God uh, saves us by his truth, by his son, by his gospel. And uh, I love in the story of Elijah, he was uh, fed by ravens. Well, ravens were unclean birds. And I've sometimes spoken with folks who... uh, 
have really struggled that, you know, the gospel was shared with me. I came to faith through someone who then abandoned it uh, themselves. What am I to do? Well, you're saved by the gospel, not by the person who spoke it to you. And uh, I I think this is a remarkable conversion um, uh, of of these men. I mean, what could be more thorough? They called out to Yahweh. They're obedient to the word of the prophet. They fear Yahweh. They offer a sacrifice and make vows to him. I mean, that's, that's an amazing change in the lives of people who were calling out to their own gods just um, a short time before. In the next chapter, we find a, a statement that Ed Clowney suggests could be the theme statement, certainly of this book, and really perhaps the entire Bible, which is salvation belongs to the Lord. Isn't that the most marvelous statement? The most marvelous. Yeah. And this picture of these pagan sailors who have been exposed to the very ver- worst witness taking hold, who come to fear the Lord, it's the first of many demonstrations of this profound truth that salvation belongs to the Lord, is it not? Yeah. And, you know, if you want to emphasize something, Nancy, it strikes me you can put it right at the beginning, you can put it right at the end, or conceivably you could put it right in the middle. And I think that this line um, in Jonah chapter 2 and verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord, salvation comes from God, uh, that is the theme of the book. I mean, it's typical of a Hebrew book. They Mm -hmm. would put it in the center. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think something very striking about that is that, uh, you know, at the end where we have this strange uh, question from God, our wonderful question from God and and the strangeness of of, of Jonah uh, being in this unresolved situation. Why are you not compassionate? Why don't you have the compassion of God in you, uh, Jonah? It makes very clear that Jonah is not the hero of the story. Um, you're, you're thrown back to uh, the fact that uh, it is God who saves him and that he needed uh, God's intervention and grace in his life, not just once, but but on a continuing basis, not just through the fish, but but later, as uh, perhaps we'll see in the conversation, uh, uh, when, when he's filled with self-pity. We really are dependent on uh, the grace um, uh, of God. And I think that this book must have been written late in Jonah's life. He couldn't have um, uh, written it at the point point where the story ends because he's in a conflict with God then he couldn't have written it then so I think he's reflecting later in his life on the story and it's a confession really saying you know uh, there are so many ways in which uh, my life turned in ways that were dishonoring to God learn from my example learn much about God's grace from my testimony but understand this at the middle of it all that salvation is from the Lord so much of the Old Testament we tend to learn by very favorable comparisons to uh, Old Testament figures. And here in this, with Jonah, in your sermon series, which then became your book, uh, Jonah Navigating a God-Centered Life, over and over again, you suggest a prayer that we would pray, which would be, uh, make me less like Jonah. Yeah. And more like Jesus. Yeah, yeah. From the very beginning to the very end of Jonah. So looking back before we move on to chapter two, just this first chapter, what would that look like to what are the contrasts that we should see between the person of Jesus and his saving work and the person of Jonah and his running from 
the work that God has given to him. Yeah, I appreciate the question because it's important to remember that sometimes we learn from contrasts rather than comparisons. Often we learn in the Bible um, uh, how much better Jesus is than this. Um, how much and those greater are good to learn. Is. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So not to get stuck up on, uh, you know, we're in the judges and these judges seem to be rather bad guys. Yeah, of course, that's why we need a better judge. That's yes. why we need a better king and, and so forth. And uh, the contrast here between uh, Jonah, who is called by God uh, to go into a really difficult and costly situation in order to go after uh, people to whom God will show mercy. And he basically says no. And then you come to the Son of God and he's surrounded by by uh, joy and worship in the presence of the Father and the commission to him is to go and to go into a place of danger, more than a place of danger, to suffer and to die and to rise. Why? Because um, uh, of mercy that is going to come to unworthy, rebellious and wicked people. And he says, yes, yes. And he goes and he comes and uh, the contrast there is overwhelmingly beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, let's move into chapter two of Jonah. Now, if we're looking at the book of Jonah in our Bible, it looks very different. (laughs) Um, We've gone from these uh, paragraphs to what now looks like poetry. So that must impact some way in which we understand this. But I know when I was teaching through the book of Jonah, one challenge I had, Colin, was this is labeled in the beginning of chapter two in my Bible, Jonah's prayer. Yep. All right. Yeah. So I read this and that makes me think that I'm reading the content of his prayer. But that doesn't seem to be what it is. What it's really, it seems to be more. It's telling us about Jonah praying. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, it does say um, that uh, Jonah prayed to the Lord from the belly of the fish. So we we clearly have an account of uh, what he is saying once he's inside the belly of the fish. But I think you're absolutely right, Nancy, that uh, from that position in which he is now saved, he is now secure, um, uh, he's reflecting back on what his experience was like from the moment that he hit the water. And uh, he actually relates. And no, no doubt he did this in the presence of God and 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 spoke uh, before the Lord uh, about it and he recounts it for us and so verse 3 he's clearly on the surface of the water because he talks about your waves and your billows um, uh, passed over me so waves passing over means you're either at the surface or, or you're near to uh, the surface so he's trying to keep his head above water but he can't uh, verse 5 the water's closed in over me verse 6 I went down we're back to your theme of going down and, and he talks about going down to the roots of the mountain and in the middle of all this I I love that in verse 4 he's got this struggle of faith he says I am driven away from your sight so here he is in the water I'm done for I have no hope God has rejected me but he can't settle there faith can't settle there he says yet I will look to your holy temple well there's faith struggling and um, we know what it is to have a struggle of faith to feel one thing and yet to be determined to trust God uh, on the basis of his promise. I, 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 I feel driven away. I feel there's no hope for me here, um, but I'm going to look to your holy temple. And, and so he exercises some faith. He goes all the way down to the, the bottom. Uh, I, uh, I picture semi-conscious snapped up by this uh, fish at, at a moment where um, life could hardly be continued. And once he's inside the fish, he's safe. 
Um, I mean, this is a beautiful picture, I think, of what it is to be in Christ. When he's in the water on his own, he's facing death, looking death in the face. When he's in the fish, he's praying and he talks about thanksgiving. Why? Because he knows he's safe. God has laid hold of him and and the saviour fish has come. Well, of course, all that points us forward to uh, God's great salvation and how we are saved in Christ. And uh, in Christ, um, uh, we still have many, many troubles this side of heaven. But boy, we're safe when we're in the saviour. Beautiful. And his talking about his prayer and his, his experience of going down, down, his calling out to the Lord. That's when that key phrase we talked about earlier, he uh, is the conclusion of this section of verse nine, when he says salvation belongs to the Lord. And it's as if we see that line from a different angle. Now yeah, we, yeah. we saw the salvation of these pagan sailors on the ship in chapter one. And now what is this salvation that belongs to the Lord that he has experienced? Well, he's been delivered from death. I mean, because uh, uh, he must have been absolutely at the point of it. He's gone right down. He's gone to the lowest point. And God, in a, a, a way that was unimaginable, um, and people still go on and on about the impossibilities of it and all the rest of it. Well, uh, what must it have been to Jonah? How could he have imagined what God would do to rescue him at the bottom of the ocean? But he did. And he's, uh, there's, there's, there's no limit to this God's mercy, but uh, he is the savior God. And he spits him out. Uh, We read in verse 10 of chapter 2, And the Lord spoke to the fish. It vomited Jonah out upon dry land. And then a verse that to me is as miraculous as the fish in chapter 3, verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. You love the second time. Isn't that marvelous? (laughs) What uh, amazing. The Lord would entrust this, this, this prophet. And he says to him, Verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. It says, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and then he called out. And, of course, we don't know if this was his whole sermon or maybe a summary of it, but it's pretty condensed here. This was his message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So before we look at what actually happens out of it, what do you make of this? We're clearly being told this is a very large city. I mean, in terms of the uh, time um, uh, in history that we're talking about, 120,000 people. This is a big city of uh, a large population. And he goes right in. He doesn't hang about. He goes to this great center of population. And he is fearless at this point in communicating what is a message of judgment. Now, I don't think that's the only thing that he said because of the New Testament references in which our Lord Jesus speaks about Jonah himself being a sign sign. to the people of Nineveh. Now, if he himself was a sign, and uh, in Matthew's gospel, we're told that the sign was that he was three days, three nights in the belly of the fish. That must mean that Jonah told his story, which is a story of grace. So his message was one of judgment and it was one of grace, um, which gives us great direction in terms of the honesty and integrity uh, with which we have to uh, minister the word of God. So he can be telling them his own story of his rebellion and 
perhaps his message ended with, but salvation belongs to the Lord. <laughs> and he, I think that he was probably his sermon title, don't you? <laughs> probably so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they hear it and clearly they respond to it. I mean, people get so uptight. Think of all the ink and all the thought that's been invested in trying to think about this miracle of being uh, swallowed by a big fish. And yet here is an incredible miracle in chapter three, verse five. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's a miracle. I, it, it absolutely is. I, I, I love this. And this is a great encouragement for um, all of us who teach the Bible, uh, Nancy, that it, it says that the Ninevites heard Jonah and they believed God. Uh, that's terrific. So here's this man. He speaks the word of God. They hear him. And they believe God. So when we speak the word of God, then the voice of God is heard. And um, that, that's a wonderful encouragement for anyone who's a Bible teacher. You speak the word of God, um, then uh, when the word of God is heard, the voice of God uh, is heard. They, they, they heard Jonah. They, they believed God. God spoke to them uh, through this opening up of his word through, through the prophet. And once again, salvation belongs to the Lord. Yeah. In this enormous city, uh, God has once again moved out to save people, to bring people to repentance. Um, so the word reaches the king of Nineveh. Mm-hmm. I suppose that means maybe he didn't hear it directly from Jonah. Yeah, I mean, it does seem that it goes from the, the bottom up, as it were, in terms of uh, the, the uh, penetration of the society, but it gets all the way to the top. And he's an interesting contrast to Jonah. Because his response is to cover himself with sackcloth and ashes. He is in deep repentance. He is leading his people toward repentance. He says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And I love this. Who knows? (laughs) God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You mentioned earlier the... That so central understanding or really revelation of who God is, that he is a God of steadfast love Mm. and abundant mercy. Yeah, yeah. And here is this, to this point, pagan king in the most evil empire. And he is casting all of his hopes on the possibility that God would have mercy. Yeah, which I think is another confirmation that uh, that message was communicated. We, we gave uh, a reason for believing that from the New Testament. But when, when the, the king says, uh, who knows God may relent, where did he get that idea? Uh, well, the, there must have been a communication of the grace of God. And that would have been through God's relenting and his grace in the life of Jonah who spoke the word. So, there was the sign. It was yeah, a sign of God's that, mercy. That's right. So it's more than Jonah simply telling his personal story. It's more than, you know, I can share my testimony here it's that he was able to testify that god is the god of grace and uh, and that got to the king now when we come to the end of chapter three there's a verse that sometimes we as bible teachers struggle with because we know a hand is going to go up immediately when we read in verse 10 when god saw what they did how they turned which is repentance right mm. from their evil way god relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it So we know a hand's going to go up immediately. What do you mean? Because we know that God never changes. God relented. 
how do we how do we deal with that question that yeah. comes up about God seemingly changing His mind? Is that what has yeah. happened? Yeah. Well, the word relenting. Uh, I mean, that is a wonderful word. Um, I mean, this this uh, if, if someone asked that question in the group, I, I'd say this is a truth to be rejoiced in, because if if God carried through on every announced judgment, then we would still be under condemnation. And the the central truth of the gospel is that here we are born under condemnation. That was our position. And yet uh, in Jesus Christ, there is this offer of mercy and grace. We can say to any person, every person, um, there is a savior for sinners. And here's what he has done. He has died for sin. Therefore, there is a savior for you if you will come to him. There is mercy from God in you. There is a way out of judgment. We're not fixed in some kind of determinism that uh, says, well, this is your lot and you'd better live with it. Uh, There's hope in the gospel. And uh, I think that the word relent just, uh, it's, it's difficult to understand some things fully, but there are some things that are better rejoiced in than understood. We would think that someone who is a great prophet of the Lord, God has used him beyond his ability. 120,000 people in this city have hmm. repented. Amazing. One would think that he would um, have a great sense of joy over this possibility, but we see in chapter 4 that's not the case. What's happening here? Yeah. Well, um, Grace will either make a person worship or it will make a person angry. And in this case, grace is making uh, Jonah angry. I mean, he says, uh, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love. And I knew that this is what you're like. And and uh, he's angry. Um, uh, uh, and, and that is true that um, the the doctrine of God's grace the amazing truth in which he lays hold of people and does a saving and redeeming work in people's lives that will either lead a person to worship because you're saying, why in all the world am I a Christian today? Lord, it is your sheer mercy. It is your grace. It's unfathomable to me that you should have laid hold of. Why Why? why do I love you when, when others despise you? That hasn't come from me. That's your grace. So grace can lead you to worship or Grace can make a person angry. And uh, why is God doing this in regards to these people? And what right does God have to do this? And so forth and so on. And I think we see grace making Jonah angry here. And God has to deal with him. And he doesn't leave him there. It's almost as if he has gone up to this hill and he's looking back at the city. And that what the, the desire he's nurturing in his heart is mm-hmm. that God would do what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's right. He's hoping he yeah. gets to actually be a witness yes. yeah. of this sulfur and fire coming down to the destroy the city. And that's how deep his anger is. And isn't that amazing that someone who's experienced grace themselves would want judgment on other people? It doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. It, it is a contradiction. And yet um, uh, when, when you, you look at it, um, it's not so strange. It's not so far away from what can easily be in our hearts, particularly towards uh, others who might wish us harm. Yes. So talk to us about this plant and 
this this vine that grows up and he's he's in the shade and it feels so good. He's so comfortable <laughs> underneath yeah. this shade. And then, of course, God appoints a worm. The shade is gone. And once again, I mean, we hear over and over again, he's angry, angry, angry. But this time he's angry because he... I don't know. He's getting a sunburn, I guess, <laughs> uh, and he doesn't appreciate it. What is God trying to do in Jonah's life through this vine? How is he revealing himself to Jonah? Well, I, I think um, that God is revealing Jonah's own heart to him. He's drawing out um, the anger and the self-pity uh, that is that is in there. And and Jonah's uh, position seems to be that uh, that, that that he he is. Um, he's rejoicing in God's gifts and he has lost sight of uh, the real love that um, uh, a believer should have for the one who gives the good gifts. Um, I find it helpful to think of it this way, that by taking the vine away and by sending the east wind, Nancy, um, God delivers us from a vine-centered life. And it's very easy to have a vine-centered life. You know, the blessings of God, and uh, I'm good with the blessings of God, but here now a blessing is taken away. And, and what's revealed actually is a um, self-pity and, and, and resentment. And that all comes out. Um, and so what, what we're finding at the end is that Jonah is as dependent on the grace of God at the end as he was at the beginning. Um, now that speaks to us. Um, okay, here he is. He's been blessed in ministry. Many people have come to the Lord. He's every bit as dependent upon the grace of God um, uh, as, as he always was. And it becomes very clear at the end of the book. You said in your sermon series... Um that God was concerned about the city mm -hmm. and Jonah is concerned about his own comfort. Yeah. And that that's very convicting, isn't it? Yeah. Because yeah. isn't that us? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, 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 it really is. And, and again, uh, here's another place of learning from contrasts. Uh, look at the difference. And uh, it's a very powerful one. And one contrast you draw is the difference between uh, Jonah, who is angry that the city is not destroyed, and that one who is greater than Jonah, yeah. who looks over the city of Jerusalem, who that has not yeah. responded in repentance. Yeah. Yeah. And he weeps yeah. over that city. And, and Nancy, there, there is a kind of a brand of Christianity that's always angry with the world, always wanting to rage against particular sins and so forth and so on. And uh, I think that the words of God to Jonah, who's very angry here, speak very powerfully in that regard. Here is the compassion of God himself towards people who, he says, neither know, they don't know their right from their left, which I think is a model. Um, they're, they're morally lost. They don't know good from bad, right from wrong. Um, and, and God has pity on them. He has mercy on them. And he determines that he is going to do them good. Mm. And um, uh, he sends his word through the prophet. And uh, disaster is, um, uh, is averted. It's a wonderful story of grace. It really is. And the book ends in such an unusual way yeah. in, uh, with a question, yeah. with, with God's question to Jonah. So let's deal with the content of the question as well as just the idea that Jonah would end this book, this um, record of his own experience with God that he wants to teach us to not be like him. And the question is, 
is God saying, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Yeah, yeah. Why would Jonah end his book that way? Well, um, uh, I, I, he is giving the glory to God. Uh, it would not have been a better ending if it said, um, and so I, Jonah, became the most compassionate prophet there ever was and had lots of pity for the people of Nineveh. Uh, he's confessing. He's saying, you know, uh, w- uh, what is in God is marvelous and praiseworthy. And I do think that comes back to why at the very center he's put the main theme, which is salvation comes from the Lord. Not from me, not because I'm some kind of paragon of virtuous prophet. That's not what Jonah is saying. He's confessing. And um, he gives all the glory to God. And I think it must have been written, as we said earlier, later in his life, because he's reflecting on all of this and reflects back on, you know, uh, there was that sourness and that self-pity in my heart even then. And uh, and and therefore I see um, uh, the great need of uh, the compassion of God and how wonderful his compassion is. It's greater than my compassion. Um, and yet he couldn't have written a book that ended giving God the glory uh, apart from God's grace working its way through in his life. and uh, That uh, salvation yeah. that belongs to the Lord yeah. continued to work in his life indeed. to sanctify him. Yeah, yeah. indeed, yeah. indeed. Would this picture of God been surprising to the people of Jonah's day when they read about the, this compassionate God and the way this God saved a prophet like Jonah? Um, Absolutely no doubt, Um, because God is always bigger than our little image of him, our little understanding of him. And uh, I think this is one of the great values of studying the book of Jonah, is that it enlarges our understanding of God. It gives to us an awareness of the sovereignty of God, the relentlessness of God in his works of judgment and in his works of grace, uh, the way in which God never gives up on his people. I mean, these, these things stretch our minds so that we worship God and see more of him as he is. Uh, than we would otherwise. And um, it's a wonderful missionary book, isn't it? Yes, because these are people who they think at this point, we are God's chosen people. Yeah, yeah. And he's called us to be uh, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Of course, that makes us ask, what does a priest do except mediate? Yes, right. uh, Right, the love of God. But it's an unusual Old Testament picture that shows us that God has always been about his gospel being for every tribe and tongue and nation. Has, yeah. Isn't it? Right, yeah, right back to uh, Abraham, that uh, you're going to be blessed, but that's not the end of the line. It's through you that all the nations of the earth will be blessed, or through your seed that uh, all of the nations with, uh, of the earth will be blessed. So this directly shoots forward uh, to Pentecost and to the nations and to God's um, uh, compassion, uh, not only um, uh, for his uh, Old Testament people, Israel, but for people from um, every tribe and nation. Mm-hmm. So as we bring this to a close, Colin, talk with us a little bit about your own work in preparing to teach and preach through this book. Um, What are some of the resources that you found helpful? You mentioned Spurgeon, and I saw you quoted him a number of times in your sermon series. Are there some other resources that you would recommend to teachers to look at 
look through on the book of Jonah as we prepare to teach? Yeah, surely. Uh, the, the book that I found most useful uh, was uh, Sinclair Ferguson's book, Man Overboard. It's short, it's easy access, um, and really, really helpful. And, uh, and at Unlocking the Bible, we have a children's version of the uh, book of uh, Jonah, the story uh, put in poetry, Man on the Run, uh, which um, has been greatly appreciated, especially by younger children. And it doesn't do what we were talking about before, which is uh, give a trite version to children. It gives a Christ-centered and theologically rich uh, version uh, to children that can be easily read. I've been reading it to my three-year-old granddaughter, and she loves it. Oh, so, that's uh, awesome. there you go. I see it ends with Jonah 4.2. You are a gracious God and yeah. merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. A beautiful summary of really all that we've been talking about, yeah, about is. the it book is. of Jonah. Yeah. Well, let's close this way, Colin. I would ask you to consider that perhaps you were in front of a group of people who were preparing to teach through the book of Jonah, perhaps in your own church. It was going to be taught throughout your Sunday school and other various small groups. How would you challenge and encourage them as they begin the work of preparation to teach through the book of Jonah? What word of challenge and encouragement would you have for those of us who are teaching this book? Oh, <laughs> um, lots. Um, uh, this is the living word of God. And so as you give yourself to, uh, to teach it, uh, you are planting living seed that will raise uh, a harvest in the lives of uh, many people. And in teaching this particular part uh, of the word of God, uh, you're really going to be teaching something that will help people to uh, see the greatness and glory of God more clearly. Um, God's grace, um, his relentless going after people, the fact that he saves. I love this. It's not, it's not just that God makes salvation possible. He saves. He actually gets hold of people like he did at Saul of, uh, of Tarsus. I found that great truth to be more helpful to me in regards to evangelism and praying for uh, unconverted friends and loved ones than anything else. Uh, you know, if I'm looking to um, the desires um, or the inclinations of an unconverted uh, person who's been running from God for years, there's not much hope in that. But if I can look to a God who saves, a God who doesn't need people's permission but can can reach into Jonah's life through a storm and can break into the violence of Nineveh by his word and turn things around, um, uh, that's the God of the Bible. That gives hope in evangelism. It gives reason for prayer. It gives uh, a lift to worship. Um, God's relentlessness in never letting go of his people helps us to fight against our own sins, our own self-pity, our own selfishness. Um, and then just the assurance and confidence that God will not let us go. Um, that is a marvelous, marvelous encouragement for all of the people of God. So it's a wonderfully rich book. And uh, I hope that this will encourage many people to teach it and that God's blessing will be on it. I do too, and I know that you have really helped many people, not only to be equipped to teach, but to give us a passion and a a sense of the beautiful picture of the salvation of God through the person of Jesus Christ that's presented uniquely through this book. You've been listening to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, a production of the Gospel Coalition, sponsored by Crossway. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, the Gospel Transformation Bible, in which Colin Smith wrote the introduction and notes on the book of Jonah. 
Christian books and tracks. Learn more about their gospel-centered resources at crossway.org.